Hi, I'm Mike Duran. And hi, I'm Peter Rao. Welcome back to Counterbalance. Hello and welcome back to Counterbalance. For those of you who missed last week's relaunch, I'm your new co-host, Peter Rao. Don't worry, Marshall Kozlov as well, but now engaged in other projects. This week, Mike and I are joined by Yuri Sack, special advisor to Ukraine's Minister of Defense. I met Yuri and his colleague, Gennady Korochka, at some point in the past year when they were in Washington. You may not have heard of Yuri or Gennady, but most of our listeners will be familiar with their work because they are the two men behind the social media accounts of Ukraine's Ministry of Defense. Yuri has crisscrossed the West, drumming up support for Ukraine, and has shown remarkable feel for American culture and his social media creativity. To overcome U.S. resistance to send M1 Abrams main battle tanks, for example, Yuri and Gennady cut an ad on Twitter that showed an Abrams tank, which they introduced as the newest sports utility vehicle, driving through the countryside to the tune of the Like a Rock Chevy pickup truck commercials that every man of a certain age will fondly remember. Most recently, they tapped into the huge popularity of the Top Gun movies to push for F-16s. It's been great having Yuri as a friend of Hudson Institute, and we welcome him now to the podcast. Yuri, hello, and welcome to Counterbalance. Hello, Peter, and uh, it's great to be on this Counterbalance podcast of Hudson's Institute. And uh, quite frankly, when I heard, you know, every time I hear something beginning with counter, uh, the first word that springs to mind is counteroffensive. <laughs> Forgive me, this is uh, inevitable these days. Well, we hope we can sprinkle some good luck on that uh, counteroffensive today. And I understand you're coming to us from Kiev, from Ukraine. Yes, I am from the capital. So most of our listeners will know your social media accounts, the wizardry that is Ukraine's Ministry of Defense Twitter account, for example, but they might not know who Yuri Sack the man is. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be the position you're in today. I uh, was originally educated in Kyiv. Uh, I got a master's in uh, public international law. Then I moved uh, to uh, do my postgraduate studies first at Oxford, uh, University of Oxford. Then I moved to another uh, university in the United Kingdom, the University of Wolverhampton, where I did my PhD, which incidentally was on the topic of the human rights of internally displaced people. And this was back in uh, 2000. Uh, and of course, my topic, my area of research spent such countries as, you know, former Yugoslavia, Indonesia, Sierra Leone, to think that today Ukraine is home to the largest worldwide, largest population of internally displaced people. Um, you know, more than 6 million are now internally displaced and another eight are uh, living as refugees uh, in Europe and other countries. So that's my educational background. Then I returned to Ukraine where I uh, started working in the corporate sector in crisis communications and strategy development. Um, this and, and since uh, the beginning of my engagement in this area, the company I was with, which is CFC Big Ideas, uh, we were always involved with some government-related projects. So we would uh, help our government with strategic communications with a view to promoting investment climate, with a view to positioning our country internationally in a favorable light. Uh, and of course, when things began to happen in Ukraine in 2013 with the revolution of dignity, I was an active participant of that movement. Uh, and when in 2014, after the revolution of dignity and after our 
President Yanukovych fled as a fugitive because uh, he wasn't able to stay in the country. He was afraid that the crowd of protesters would just simply crucify him. Uh, and then the Russian annexation of uh, Crimea began, the illegal annexation. And the Russian war in the east of Ukraine in the Donbass area began. So our company couldn't stand aside. And we joined forces with a similar company like ours, a strategic communications firm. And we've set up the Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Now, that was uh, originally intended as a pretty much as a news agency, as a platform to which on a daily basis, all Ukrainian politicians would come, ministers, prime ministers, president, and they would deliver firsthand message, direct message to the West. Because when Russians began these hostilities in 2014, we as strategic communications experts knew from day one that there was a great imbalance of Russian propaganda in the West. Now, the pretty much Ukraine's voice was not heard. We set up the Ukraine Crisis Media Center then to redress that imbalance and to provide the world with the truth about our country, you know, firsthand without any intermediaries. And uh, Ukraine Crisis Media Center was actively involved in counter propaganda, in information warfare uh, for, you know, a number of years. I was part of the team uh, that even went to like, NATO summit and we were trying to uh, actually secure certain security guarantees for Ukrainian armaments uh, back in 2015 and 16. And when this large scale invasion began, you know, because we knew uh, from long time ago, uh, the Minister uh, of Defense of Ukraine, Mr. Reznikov, we knew him, uh, you know, from the era when he was not even uh, minister. Uh, we did a lot of joint projects together in the past uh, that was also related to uh, promoting Ukraine. So we immediately, I, myself and my colleagues, my partners in business, we got in touch with them and we said, Alexei, we understand that strategic communications will be essential for Ukraine's survival. We understand that information warfare is will be just as important as the kinetic warfare on the battlefield. So we are here uh, able to offer you our services, offer our services to our country, to our people. Uh, we want to contribute to our resistance uh, so you can count on us. Uh, the next day, I was appointed advisor to Mr. Reznikov. Another partner of mine was also appointed advisor, and Gennady became a team lead. Gennady Kurushka, I mean, he became a team lead of a, a Stratcom experts and analysts group uh, that, among other things, started doing social media, Twitter account of Minister of Defense, as well as assisting and advising the minister personally on his personal Twitter account. Now, interestingly enough, if you will allow me just a few more things, we knew because Twitter, unlike the United States or even Western Europe, Twitter in Ukraine is not big. If you look at any corporation and if you, if you analyze their communications strategies, Twitter ordinarily takes takes a very small proportion. But we knew because we were always looking at the US, we were following very closely the election battles in the US, and we knew the power of Twitter long time before it arrived in Ukraine. So we said to our minister, Alexei, Twitter will be a decisive weapon in the information warfare. We are happy and able and ready to do it. Yuri, uh, I uh, work on the Middle East and uh, I also follow uh, Ukraine. But l lately I've come to the conclusion, and, and I, I want to ask you if you think this is true, that Telegram has become really the cutting edge platform information. 
and Twitter kind of follows Telegram. I, I, I agree that, that, that Twitter is incredibly important, but the raw material that, that gets into Twitter really starts in Telegram. That's my feeling. Is that the way you see it? Where do you go to get the, other than what you're getting from, the, from government, just to follow what your opponents are saying and what's happening on the battlefield? Where do you start? Well, Mike, indeed. Uh, Telegram is probably a top communications platform in Ukraine now, and it was even before the beginning of the large-scale invasion. Uh, so, indeed, a lot of information because Twitter, you know, Twitter is now changing its formats and allows for more elaborate uh, and, and longer text. But uh, Telegram continues to be a very important platform, uh, with the reservation that uh, you know there are concerns about uh, personal communication on Telegram because. Uh, the ownership structure is kind of murky. Uh, so, for example, our government officials are advised not to use Telegram for their own purposes, for their communication. It, it's more uh, of a safety issue. But yes, Telegram does play a very important role. It's fast. It's uh, very informative. Uh, you know, everybody's on Telegram. Your foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, was just at the conference in London on reconstruction and rebuilding and aid for Ukraine. And on the sidelines of that summit, he gave uh, an interview to a British journalist in which he said that uh, in each of these campaigns, which essentially you've offered a lot of the messaging for, be it the main battle tanks, be it the HIMARS, uh, be it the long distance storm shadow weaponry, be it the F-16 air support, you've managed to scale and summit each of those very challenging and difficult terrains. And you've managed to essentially eventually get the West to concede that this wouldn't be escalated to the point of a nuclear weapons use, for example, which has been the fear of some Western capitals. But now uh, the remaining major summit is the sustainability of these weapon systems, including especially in artillery. Is that where the focus of your messaging is going now? Or uh, since you've accomplished each of these goals, since you've uh, reached the summit of each of these areas that you've talked about when I've met with you, where are you focused on now? Right now, we are focused, Peter, on, uh, first of all, further improving our air defense capabilities. And that includes, of course, the F-16s. When we met with you last time, you remember F-16s were still um, uh, unthinkable for most U.S. decision makers. And uh, we told you back then that, you know, we will not stop in our campaigns. We and teams like ours uh tirelessly have advocated because you know for us it's so obvious it's uh uh it's a no-brainer you know ukraine is here defending the eastern flank of nato ukraine is here uh standing up against an enemy uh with a superior air force considerably superior air force uh so and ukraine is a target of missile and drone attacks on a daily basis uh, Peter, like every night, uh, you know, we like I personally just so you understand, I my apartment is in uh, central part of Kiev. So there is a, you know, there is a bedroom in my apartment, but there is also a little cupboard which has no windows. And because we have this rule uh, that when the air raid siren comes on and starts wailing, now you either have to go to a bomb shelter, uh, or if you don't have time to go to bomb shelter, you need to at least be between two walls. So this is a rule of two walls. Because if you are between two walls, even if a missile or um, a shutdown, a debris of a missile hit your apartment, then you, you stand a better chance of survival. So, you know, 
uh, I've been sleeping on the floor in between two walls uh, for, uh, I can't remember, since beginning of May, because pretty much every night we have these air raid sirens. So for us, uh, making sure that our air defense system is uh, improved on a daily basis continues to be a top priority. And look, our allies, uh, like you said, we have successfully uh, been able to convince them to start providing us with uh, things that were unthinkable before. Like, for example, the Patriot system. The U.S. is now providing Ukraine the Patriot air defense system. Now, this is incredible. First of all, it protects our skies. But second of all, Patriot systems are demonstrating we have used Patriot systems to shoot down. I can't remember the exact number, but it's, I think it's around 17 Russian hypersonic so-called Kinjal missiles. Now, we are doing this. First of all, we are protecting our people and cities. But second of all, we are again exposing Russia that it's a paper tiger. We are exposing Russian, uh, you know, it's not a superpower. It's not uh, the second most powerful army in the world uh, because, you know, they were so proud of their kinjals and now we're shooting them down with the U.S. patriots. So, um, you know, on the one hand, yes, indeed, we have achieved a lot. But on the other hand, there is still more to come. Like we need F-16s. Uh, and, and, you know, the decisions, the political decisions to form the fighter jet coalition for Ukraine have been made, including by the U.S. Now we need to deliver on those promises and we will continue to do that. And just quickly, just quickly, another important focus of our campaigning now is the NATO summit that will take place in pretty much less than two weeks in Vilnius. Now, we, stay, we, we are trying to tell the world that the only feasible way to achieve sustainable peace in Europe is to make sure that Ukraine gets full membership of NATO alliance. One of the greatest successes, I guess maybe the greatest success from a strategic communications point of view of the Ukrainians was, as you said, to expose the weaknesses of Russia. I mean, the image we had of Russia before the war and the image we have now are just totally different. And that's even at the level of the most senior decision makers in government, uh, I think that that's the, the, the case. But there was an, also an image of Russia before the war as a communications giant, as the most sophisticated propagandist in the, in the world. As a professional looking at them and fighting against them, do you find them to be particularly talented in propaganda? And where do, what do you think their strengths are in that area today? Mike, Russians were good uh, at their propaganda until the beginning of the large-scale invasion, because until that moment, they were in a kind of gray zone. Uh, this was a hybrid warfare. So, for example, they didn't have to tell that they were in Crimea before. Right? They would tell these are green men uh, with, with no insignia, right? So uh, their propaganda had more credibility back then because they were able to manipulate the reality in a more subtle ways. The moment their missiles began striking Ukrainian cities, the moment their army invaded Ukraine in an open way, this was a moment of truth. And from that moment on, their propaganda pretty much stopped working uh, the magic that they were benefiting from in the past. Because, you know, uh, they cannot, like, I'll give you a, good, a simple example. Uh, the Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs, Lavrov, uh, goes to India to a large secure global security forum. And he's sitting there and he's telling the audience in India, international audience, that it was not Russia who started this war. 
and the audience laugh and and you remember that one and the audience yeah. starts laughing people yeah. start laughing so after it was you know gloves off after russia came out as a terrorist state as an aggressor there is very little they can do to kind of make their propaganda work just to just to reinforce your point and that's an indian audience which has a certain amount of sympathy for russia so if well, you can't absolutely. keep the indians from laughing at you then who can you having said that i also have to say that they continue to spend uh you know without exaggeration tens of millions of us dollars um on info operations and uh campaigns that they hope will help them not lose this war which we are confident they will so for example uh the most recent campaign we know we have intelligence data that they're spending up to 10 million us dollars to discredit uh the ukrainian counteroffensive right so they're spreading lies like they're spreading uh and again this is back to the original point that it's not working because uh the latest info operation campaign they've launched was that the commander in chief of ukraine zaluzhny was killed uh the chief of ukraine's intelligence uh general budanov was killed so they they spread this information internationally and then these people show up you know on the front lines yeah. uh, in the war rooms uh giving interviews uh so everybody understands once again that russia you know even uh, experts in global south now say that every time russia opens uh, russians lips move they're lying so uh there is there is a line between propaganda and lies and russia has crossed that line so nobody trusts them i've taken a, an interest for a long time in strategic nonviolence, which can be rather coercive even if it isn't kinetic and that dates back um in my mind when i first started looking at it to the uh Otpor campaign in the balkans this was a serbian a student-led organization that helped bring down Milosevic. And the communications then, the networking was rather rudimentary. Fast forward to the Iraq war a few years later, and that really, in my mind, on the communications level, was really the war of the satellite dish. If you took a helicopter over Baghdad, you would see thousands of satellite dishes, and that really was the primary means of communication. The Arab Spring a few years later, I think, became the revolution of social media where organizing took place in Cairo, and in uh, Tunis and elsewhere via Facebook and social media. And uh, the war in Ukraine, I think, is the war of the smartphone. And uh, to my thinking, part of the reason why the Russians have struggled quite literally to keep up with the Ukrainians is because they have a relatively hierarchical, almost Soviet style, not only in their military, but also information operation domain, where the messages come down from up top and they are then disseminated through established channels. Whereas in Ukraine, not to denigrate your own work at the Ministry of Defense, but you have millions of citizens with smartphones uploading videos on the internet. And uh, at some point, as artificial intelligence take, takes hold, this saying might go out of fashion. But for now, it still holds that it's hard to tell people not to believe their lying eyes, which is to say you see these videos and you know that, um, that the decentralized nature of, of information coming out of Ukraine cannot be steered from a central sort of propaganda zone. Do you agree with that? Do you think that's more or less a correct reading of the situation? I agree with that, uh, Peter, entirely. And I would go in further. Uh, see, we Ukrainians, we are fighting a just war. We are fighting a war for our freedom. We are fighting a war for our values. We are fighting a war in which we are protecting Europe from the spread of this evil. 
Now, this is why, and you know, this is something that every Ukrainian understands on, on, you know, with every fiber of our body. So this is why when the large scale invasion began, every, without exception, Ukrainian uh, became a reporter, because like you said, everybody has a mobile phone and everybody is keen to spread the word, right? And everybody is keen to alert your, your, your neighbors if there is a risk or a threat. So uh, it's actually gone so far that at some point authorities and the Ministry of Defense, and we are doing this now on a daily basis, we have to kind of stop people from being too active. Because for example, if there is a missile strike on our country and people use their mobile phones to record the explosions, and post them on social media. Now that is then used by the Russians, uh, aggressors. Uh, they are, you know, getting information about the location of the targets, whether they've hit or missed. You know, they, so this is pretty much damaging to our security. This is why we are asking our citizens. And in fact, we have even adopted laws criminalizing certain types of these activities, saying that look. Uh, it's 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 important to be part of the information war, but you don't have you, you don't you must not be irresponsible when you share content on social media. Now, the second important point, the second important point I'd like to make is this: because for Russians this is not a just war, they also have you know pretty much the same number of mobile phones, but they are not switched on. They are not part of, like Russian society is in the shadow. They don't want to participate. Uh, they, they want to sit it out. So there's only a number of war correspondents who are driving Russian propaganda machine, and there are consumers of information. So uh, this is another uh, reason why they are failing, because for us, it's, it's a people's effort. For them, it's, it's an effort of just a very, very limited propaganda machine and uh, channels. And lastly, we always compare, you know, our information war to the kinetic war. And decentralization is also a very important factor of success of Ukrainian army on the battlefield. Russian army are not independent when it comes to making decisions. Ukrainian army is so decentralized that every commander of every small unit is prepared to take responsibility for his actions and to make decisions. This is why we are faster, we are more agile, we are more free. Historically, I've seen the Russians uh, uh, being very successful in information operations in the areas that I've followed is piggybacking on existing currents of thought in other societies that work to their advantage, even if they're not pro-Russian. Yeah. Say isolationist tendencies in, in the U.S., where you have attitudes of people just want to stay out. Putin has been very successful in the last um, decade or a decade and a half of presenting himself to a lot of Christians in Europe and in the United States as an upholder of Christian values, thing, things like that. Are you seeing significant Russian activity in those areas where, they're, where, where they are feeding information to, to networks pre-existing networks in other societies that don't necessarily understand that they're being fed a, a propaganda line at all. Absolutely, Mike. This is happening on a daily basis. You know, just uh, Peter knows I was on a almost around the world trip just a uh, couple of months back and uh, I went to faraway places like Australia and New Zealand and you could see how Russian 
propaganda is working its ways into their information space and they're trying to create social incohesion and instability by kind of playing on those sentiments, right? So uh, they are, uh, like you said, piggybacking on the pre-existing um, concepts that are dominant in one society or another, and they are uh, fanning the flames of, of, of these differences in those societies, and, and they're destabilizing these societies in such a way. Moreover, they are using, you know, they, what we're seeing now, and this is beginning to be uh, an issue for us and something that we will be focusing on uh, going forward, uh, for example, uh, they are working very intensively with the African continent. Uh, so they are using this uh, neo-imperialist logic and myth. Uh, they are trying to appeal uh, to the anti-colonial sentiments of those countries, uh, kind of trying to say that, look, you know, you have been fighting against these Western powers for centuries, you know, for your freedom. Uh, now we are at that point again where the West is trying to colonize more countries, you know, uh, and uh, this is why you have to be on board with us. Uh, but they are failing to say that, look, essentially what Russia is doing now is a, is a colonial war. And we are, Ukraine is now fighting an anti-colonial war because Russia wants to, continue to reinstate the Soviet empire and Russia wants to destroy Ukraine as an independent entity. So uh, there are many malign uh, preconceptions or, or different uh, issues in other countries which Russia is uh, leveraging to their advantage. That is true. We're actually doing a little bit of work on uh, that uh, here at Hudson on in the Middle East arena, looking at uh, North Africa, uh, because we we believe that the um, that the Russian efforts in in Africa are part of an effort to uh, outflank NATO uh, in the south. We see what they did in Syria by uh, driving all the refugees in 2015 into Europe. Uh, the positions they're establishing in North Africa and in the Sahel are putting them in a position once again to regulate immigration flows to Europe, but also to uh, control some of the um, energy flows uh, to, to Europe. And that, if you look at it that way, then the Ukraine is, you're, you're not just protecting Russia from invasion from the from the east, but you're uh, at the forefront of a conflict between Russia and NATO in general. I, I don't think even in even in a lot of Western militaries, I don't think they um, they're looking at the, the the activities of Russia in in Africa as part of a strategy to envelop NATO. Uh, trying to somehow dismantle NATO alliance or weaken it has been uh, one of the uh, openly declared uh, objectives of the Kremlin. Now, uh, ironically and uh, fortunately, uh, they have achieved quite the opposite result. As you know, uh, NATO, since the beginning of the large-scale invasion, uh, became bigger with uh, Finland and Sweden joining uh, than it was before the large-scale invasion. And we hope that you know Ukraine will be next in line. And in fact, if you look at the last 16 months, you will see that NATO alliance has grown stronger. You know, this is one of the, if you like, side effects of this uh, large-scale invasion. You know, there were there was a lot of skepticism about uh, NATO's role in the international security system uh, before this uh, aggression against Ukraine. But uh, since it began, you know, uh, NATO has been a force uh, for good in terms of supplying Ukraine. You know, individual 
NATO member countries have been supplying Ukraine with important vital weapon system. NATO alliance has been, uh, you know, helping Ukraine with things like intelligence uh, and uh, reconnaissance and other uh, assistance, non-military assistance. So, um, of course, Russia is interested in weakening uh, NATO, maybe uh, through uh, the mechanism that you're referring to. But I, I, I think at this stage, uh, whatever they come up with is not going to work. Yuri, when you're sending out your your messages or you settled on a message, do you do you target or adjust or meter that message based on the social media platform that you're utilizing? For example, I oftentimes think of Twitter as the currency of politics, and in certain European countries, I think it's very much so uh, an elite epistemic community that is active on Twitter, whereas Facebook would be the more mass medium to get through to the regular population in a place like, say, Hungary or Austria uh, or elsewhere. How, how do you read the different platforms? Do you just carpet bomb when you have a message, uh, the same videos to all these all these formats, or do you try to adjust them, or how do you think about that? Uh, well, I, I, I think there is um, some degree of fine-tuning of these messages uh, involved when it comes to different social media, but... Uh, the, the, the major thing we want to make sure is that the content that is put out there is uh, engaging, creative, and not boring, because this is, this is, this is what makes the difference, right? Uh, whichever social media platform you are on, uh, of course, you need to understand how that specific social platform operates, you know, what are the algorithms, and, uh, you know, what are the kind of uh, target audiences. But at the same time, uh, there is... If, if the content is good, then it will do well on whatever social media you put it on. Do you know what I mean? So it's uh, in addition to what we had before. Now, TikTok is becoming very prominent, right? So many outlets and channels have turned to TikTok. So that, that's being used very uh, powerfully as well. But uh, I would just say that, you know, if, it, if it's a good message, if it's good content, with a little fine tuning, the same message does well on, across the social media. Yuri, who are your best allies uh, in turn in the uh, in in the information space outside of the United States? Who do you uh, who do you find to be um, right there with you in the trenches and able to think creatively and help you get the message out? Hudson Institute. <laughs> other, well, yeah, other than Hudson Institute. <laughs> uh, well, other than Hudson Institute, it's been absolutely amazing how we were supported by uh, you know because. Before the large-scale invasion, of course, we had uh, a pretty extensive network, us and uh, teams like ours around the world. So uh, at the moment, you know, uh, if, we, if we need specific help in a specific country, um, it's always a matter of, you know, half an hour of reaching out to the right people, right agencies, and uh, they offer us help. So in a way, you could say that the same way the Western allies support us and support Ukrainian army on the battlefield in the same way, you know, an army of information warriors uh, in the West supports the Ukrainian info warriors uh, in our daily battles uh, for truth, for, you know, countering propaganda and uh, uh, making sure that uh, the world gets facts and not fakes. Since uh, uh, you just mentioned the battlefield, it's hard to have this conversation without at least once uh discussing the counteroffensive, which is on everyone's mind. We're recording here on, on Friday, June 23rd, and I think the telltale sign for me that the counteroffensive, uh, to the extent it had a discrete starting point, was kicking off 
were those great videos you put out on operational security, which you've already mentioned earlier, with uh, soldiers standing there and putting their fingers to their to their lips um, in a sign that uh, it's important not to not to let all information uh, get out because it could help the enemy. That's also made life a little bit difficult for people like myself because the usual sources have dried up and uh, I can't really trust the histrionics on Telegram for the reasons you also articulated, even if there are some interesting tidbits of information. So uh, what are the feelings in Kyiv? What are the messages that uh, you're putting out and how should we think about um, the counteroffensive in, in the U.S.? I think it is uh, probably easier to say how people should not think about the counteroffensive. And in his most recent interview to BBC, President Zelensky said it uh, very accurately. You know, this is not uh, some kind of movie battle scene. This is not uh, a scene from uh, Saving Private Ryan or some D-Day invasion, right? This is a, a different type of modern warfare. So to, um, to expect that this would be, you know, uh, a scene where all Ukrainian armed forces gather on the field and then they on the other side of the field the russians come and then there is a, a wave of a sword or or a blow of a whistle and the battle begins that's not how it's working right so uh, the the best way to understand the uh, counteroffensive or offensive uh, is to think of it as a, a series of military operations of different complexity which are stretched you know in the in time uh, and along the very long front line, uh, the current front line the, of where the active, uh, fierce battles rage uh, is more than 900 kilometers. So we have now arrived at a stage where the Ukrainian army, first of all, we have not committed our main forces yet. Now, that is something that everybody has to understand. We continue on a daily basis moving forward little by little. We continue our probing operations. And before the offensive operations began a couple of weeks ago, we knew very well that Russians have had a long time to dig in. They're deeply entrenched and they have mined everything they could have mined. And they have air superiority. So we were not going into this thinking that this will be a walk in the park. And this is why when we would speak to our partners and allies and Western audiences, we always wanted to uh, manage expectations. We said, look, uh, we would rather under-promise and over-deliver, okay? We are the country and the nation most interested in success. So our military command, you know, is fighting a very smart war. Now that the probing operations have allowed us, given us uh, information that can be used by military command, uh, for the planning of the next stages. So we just have to all be patient. And uh, in Ukraine, we have a saying that by now is known by every little kid. Uh, in a difficult situation, trust in the UA army and everything will be okay. You know, our guys are in control. The support of our Western allies is sustainable and continues. The new weapon systems are on the way, such as F-16s, hopefully... Things like Atacom's long-range missiles will arrive. So, you know, we'll, we'll just have to be careful. It's, it's, di it's a difficult battle, no doubt about that. And, you know, we're standing up against an enemy which has a lot more of everything, artillery, people. And this is an enemy that has no regard for the life of their own soldiers. They are using them as cannon fodder in these meat grinder tactics. 
We are not like that. We are not Ruskis. We are not Russians. We have high regard for the life of our troops. This is why, you know, if the progress is slower than sometimes even we expected, it is only because our military command, when planning our next stages, wants to make sure that we inflict maximum damage on the enemy while it, uh, sustaining minimum losses on our troops. We care about our soldiers because, you know, the kind of soldiers we have, uh, I, I told you when we met, Peter, last time, you know, this is not like in Russia, our soldiers are prisoners, you know, convicted criminals and low lives. In Ukraine, these are businessmen, these are doctors, these are scientists, these are IT geniuses. And every day we are losing them because this is a war. But Russians are losing much more people, much more military equipment on the battlefield. And this is why we are quietly optimistic and we encourage everybody to stand with Ukraine and trust in Ukrainian army. Yuri, how did you uh, recruit uh, Mr. Prigozhin in these attacks on uh, <laughs> on Shoigu and Gerasimov? That, uh, that's, I think, probably your greatest success to date. Tell us how you did it and, uh, and tell us how Mr. Putin is thinking about that. Well, that's a very good question. But, you know, sometimes you don't even need to recruit people. Uh, they're just useful idiots uh, the way they are. So when we are not under air raid sirens and not in bomb shelters and we have a spare minute, so we get popcorn and we watch the <laughs> interspecies bickering in the Kremlin, between the Kremlin towers, and we understand that this is only the beginning. We understand that the fractions uh, within the Russian elites are growing People in Russia are becoming impatient with what is happening. And I think we are just at the beginning of what will result in the in like the collapse of the Russian statehood as we know it. And as our Minister of Defense, Alexei Reznikov, likes to say, and he's convinced that this is the future, when we win this war, we will all see the so-called parade of sovereignties in Russia. Russia will disintegrate because they've done so much wrong to their own people that Russian statehood in its current form is simply unsustainable. It seems to me that, uh, I, I, I know you've got in, incredible pressures on you just uh, uh, to meet the needs of your day-to-day -day operations, but it seems to me that you, you have two roles that you could potentially play here. One is because of because of Ukraine's proximity to Russia, because of the fact that you know the language and you know the Russian mentality, you you could be messaging into Russia to create exacerbate fissures in Russia and to get people the truth in Russia, and you can also play a role in explaining the Russian mentality to uh, Westerners who don't necessarily understand it. How much effort do you put into those, uh, um, in, into those areas? Quite a lot, actually. Communicating to the Russian audiences is part of our strategy. And this is why, for example, uh, our Minister of Defense in January of this year has, for example, recorded a message, uh, an open message in Russian language, addressing the Russian military uh, both senior military staff as well as ordinary soldiers, trying to deliver to them a very simple message that this is an unwinnable war for you guys. So 
if you want to live a better surrender, we will treat you in accordance with the Geneva Conventions and you stand a chance of survival. Uh, that's just one example. Then on a daily basis, of course, you know, we monitor Russian propaganda and we, uh, if you look at the Ukrainian information space, you know, uh, there is a lot of content which is produced in Russian language because from data analysis of the subscribers to even Ukrainian channels, whether on Telegram, on Twitter, on any platform, on YouTube, we can see that there are Russians who are subscribing to that as well. So we are, uh, you know, catering to their interests and in hope, in hope that the more truth they get from us about what is really happening on the battlefield, the more they will be inclined to actually stir up uh, change uh, through trouble inside Russia. This is why we have seen the growth of the partisan movement in Russia. We have seen uh, the growth of, you know, insurgencies in Russia, resistance movements. And this is, again, only the beginning. They will have a civil war. And, and we are trying to uh, facilitate that just by telling the truth. Because Russian command... Russian president, Russian minister of defense, anybody Russian, they just lie. So the, the only source for Russians to get the truth is from us. Yeah, it almost strikes me that it's more challenging uh, to be the Russians in that you have to almost hermetically seal your border of information, whereas your task is is taking the huge amounts of information and getting it out. I think I'd rather I'd rather be in your shoes than 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 the other in, in a globalized world where things move so quickly and information moves in so many directions at such a rapid pace. The issue of Russia's own vulnerabilities is obviously a very sensitive one. Our friend Luke Coffey uh, ran a conference here on the potential dissolution of the Russian Federation as we understand it today as a planning exercise. It wasn't a normative, but more of an analytical exercise because clearly no one at the State Department or elsewhere would be thinking about these sorts of things. Someone like a think tank should. And uh, so we went through the various potential ethnic and religious divisions and striations in Russia. And uh, immediately thereafter, Sergei Lavrov in the Duma named Hudson and uh, a bunch of our management has actually been uh, has been sanctioned. Not that we have assets uh, in Russia, but uh, by signal by the Russians. With regard to messaging the Russians, um, what, what about the population in Belarus? You know, just a, just a few years ago, it looked like Belarus was going to go the way of Ukraine. But Mr. Putin seems to have um, done a pretty good job of locking down Belarus again. Do you see potential there for a really serious fissure, disgruntled population? Or, or is that uh, sort of a sideshow as far as you're concerned? From where we see it, um, I think absolutely, yes. Uh, the Belarusian people will... Uh, regain control of their country, you know, they will depose Lukashenko sooner or later. And exactly this is the reason why uh, we believe Lukashenko is so reluctant to actually join this war on the side of Russia by sending in Belarusian troops, because uh, he knows that the moment the Belarusian army is not in Minsk protecting him, uh, then he's gone, right? And uh, we have intelligence data that even top Belarusian military, they are not willing to participate in this war. So uh, we have seen that Belarusian people, um, the vast majority, you know, they are capable of change. They're capable of persisting on the sort of free future for their country, a democratic future. 
and uh, it's just a matter of you know the right time and you know the conditions will be right soon i think you know let's hope immediately after ukraine's victory this ukraine's victory over russia on the battlefield will have a domino effect and you know these uh, corrupt dictatorships will fall one after another uh, that's inevitable because you know uh, there is no other way i'd like to get your take on the nuclear threat from russia when the war began there was a lot of fear here in the united states about nuclear escalation uh, obviously that's a problem for you because there's an argument being made and that that the that mr putin is very happy with of course that Ukraine's aspirations are driving the United States into a potential nuclear war. We seem to be past that. Those fears have subsided, but they're they're still out there. Um, and I wonder, what's your answer to Westerners who have those concerns? How do you uh, allay their fears, and how do you deal with it? Right then. So uh, first of all, I'd like to start by uh, recalling the famous phrase that you know nuclear wars shouldn't be fought because nuclear wars cannot be won. Now this is something that everybody understands. Second of all, uh, we have seen it from day one that Putin is trying to weaponize the fear of the Western people of this nuclear war in order to achieve results. Uh, Putin knows that Ukraine will beat them on the battlefield. Uh, Putin understands that the Western support, Western military support is instrumental for our victory. This is why he's continuing to blackmail the West and threatening the West and creating these uh, hypothetical scenarios in which uh, he hopes the Western people will freak out and will stop supporting Ukraine uh, deliberately because he's afraid, he's in panic. Now, what we have to say, of course, that uh, on the one hand, you know, the fact that, for example, they have relocated or are planning to relocate certain nuclear weapons to Belarus. I mean, that makes no difference because this will still be nuclear. This will still be Russian nuclear warheads controlled by Russia. And, you know, uh, uh, whether they are uh, literally placed in Belarus or in Russia, it doesn't change anything. It's the same threat. Uh, now, the next thing they'll say is that, of course, for as long as Russia has military uh, nuclear weapons, the risk remains. So we cannot just say, uh, and nobody will be able to say whether that risk of a nuclear threat is real or uh, it's a blackmail. But when we are trying, like you said, to allay the fears of the Western people, when we are trying to convince them that, look, Putin is banking on your fear. Uh, He's not really going to do this. We are highlighting a very simple fact that not just Western countries, but also countries like China and India have said to Russia many times that the use of even tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine will have catastrophic consequences for Putin's regime, for him personally, for Russian statehood. So mathematically, Russians don't have anything to gain. Putin even personally doesn't have anything to gain from the use of nuclear weapons. This is why I am of the opinion, and I belong to that school of thought, that this nuclear saber rattling is uh, part of the blackmail game, uh, straight out of the KGB playbook. And this is part of the strategy of weaponizing the fear of the Western partners with a view to stopping the provision of military assistance to Ukraine. I personally think that this is not going to work because we have exposed Russia as a paper tiger. 
we have po- we have exposed Putin as a liar so many times. So we just have to break through this stage. And you know, having said that, look, yesterday all Telegram channels in Ukraine were full of information that the, the yodium yodium disappeared from the pharmacies in Kiev because. Uh, our president said it very openly in his interview to BBC that our intelligence data suggests that Russia is planning to do a terrorist act on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Now, so as soon as that news spread, uh, people even in Kiev freaked out and went to pharmacies and tried to get the medicines, which allegedly can somehow alleviate uh, the consequences of. Uh, a possible nuclear strike. And today, our governmental authorities are also issuing instructions what to do in case of a nuclear disaster, in this case, on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. So it's, it's a balancing game. It's a balancing act. But when it comes to the risks of the world war, worldwide nuclear war, I think that's not possible. And I think we just need to quickly, uh, as soon as possible, defeat Russia on the battlefield and when that happens, that risk will go away as well. Yeah, I confess I'm, I'm a bit worried about the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which, of course, is the largest in Europe, in part because uh, a nuclear radiation event from there would not be the same as the overt use of a tactical nuclear weapon in the minds of some Westerners. And I think while our messaging at least in private, we're told, has been relatively clear to Putin on the implications of the use of nuclear weapons. We have not been, uh, I think, nearly as forceful about some sort of event at Zaporizhia causing problems in the region. And quite frankly, when we've left doubt in Putin's mind about our response, look at the look at the dam uh, in the Kherson region that has caused an ecological disaster and, and a humanitarian disaster on top of that. He sometimes tested the boundaries to see uh, what he can get away with, and to the extent to which he can, he can, uh, he can cow the West and bully it. But um, Yuri, you've been very generous with your time. This has been a wonderful conversation, and uh, I know you're a busy man, so we'll let you go. But please stay safe, and uh, thanks for joining us on Counterbalance. Mike, Peter, uh, it was an honor and pleasure. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed our conversation. I hope this is the first of many in the future, and. Uh, uh, to you and to all your listeners, I would just like to repeat uh, our magic uh, mantra. Stand with Ukraine and trust in the Ukrainian army and everything will be okay. Thank you, Yuri. Good luck to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this edition of Counterbalance. We're back in action. Please like and subscribe if you enjoyed today's conversation. And we will see you soon at a podcast near you. Bye-bye. Thank you.